Hi, Patrick here. And this week, a conversation about translation with Natalie Kelly. Natalie is the co-author of a book that's coming out later this year. It's called Found in Translation. She also works for a company called Common Sense Advisory. They put out reports on various aspects of the translation industry. And I was particularly interested to hear about a recent report that Natalie wrote with a couple of her colleagues. It was commissioned by the group Translators Without Borders, and it's called The Need for Translation in Africa. We'll get into the findings of that report in a little bit. But before that, Natalie told me a little bit about herself and how she got into the translation business. I grew up in a very small town of one square mile <laughs> in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of rural Illinois, and I was always interested in the world outside of that small town. So I started learning Spanish in school, and then in college I began to study more and more languages. Uh, I eventually became an interpreter for Spanish, and I worked in the courts as a court-certified interpreter. And then I also worked as a freelance translator for Spanish, and I studied in many different languages, Arabic, Japanese, French, German, a uh, little bit of lots of languages. So that's basically how I got into languages and then uh, started working with Common Sense Advisory in 2008 doing research on the language industry. Okay, and tell us a little bit more about Common Sense Advisory. I mean, as far as I understand it, they have their fingers in a, a bunch of different pies. So essentially, Common Sense Advisory is a market research firm. A lot of people don't realize that this is a huge market, that translation and interpreting touch pretty much every industry you can think of. So it's a $33 billion market in 2012. That's globally. You know, for everything from the manuals that appear in your car to products that might be sitting on, in your kitchen cupboard. Books are translated. But more than that, interpreters are also available in hospitals, in courts, in schools, at conferences. So this is a really big industry, and a lot of people don't realize that. We focus specifically on this industry, translation, localization, interpreting, all the services that support international communication, essentially. Right. And maybe the other thing that people don't realize is that you can't just download an app right now at least, <laughs> that will take care of a lot of those, you know, chord interpretation or, or for that matter, a, a car manual. Right. And that's another important area of what we cover is the technology because the technology is actually growing. And financially, it doesn't make up a very large part of that $33 billion yet. Machine translation, for example, such as Google Translate, and there are a lot of technologies that are used to make translators work more efficient. So if they've done one translation and they have to basically update a document and change just a part of it, they can leverage past translations that they've done before. Uh, but it's still the services that really are the heart of the industry. Okay, so we're going to be uh, looking at one of the reports that Common Sense Advisor has done on uh, translation in Africa. But give us a sense of the kinds of reports that you guys put out. I mean, maybe you can talk about two or three other ones. Sure. So we look at different issues that affect businesses that provide and that purchase translation services and technology. So, for example, we just recently published a report on translation at Fortune 500 companies to learn, does translation actually make those Fortune 500 companies more financially healthy? Does it affect their profit margins? If they're translating content, why are they doing it? You know, is it just to gain new customers in other markets, 
Or are they doing it to communicate with their employees in all these different countries? Or are they doing it because they think it's going to make them more profitable? We actually found out that the companies that were translating and listed as a motivation that they were trying to translate in order to gain more business or to become more profitable were not accomplishing that goal. The ones that were becoming more profitable and were actually increasing their market share were the ones who were translating to communicate with their employees. Wow. So that's assuming that this would be big multinational companies. So they would be maybe have a corporate headquarters here, but offices in many countries around the world. That's right. Or even if they don't have many offices around the world, they might have factories or they might have offices within the United States or within any country where they have employees that speak many different languages. So in the United States, they might be speaking Spanish, Vietnamese, Chinese, many different languages that are spoken in different parts of the United States. But even in other countries, they might have workers that speak an array of different languages. So a lot of times the legal documentation, HR, manuals for training workers have to be translated into other languages. And a lot of that today is done through e-learning, through software and things like that. So all of that content has to be localized, has to be uh, customized, not just the language aspects, but also visually, you know, la some languages go right to left instead of left to right. You know, all of those things have to be taken care of. And so there are lots of people who do that, engineers, you know, in addition to translators. So a whole array of people are involved in, in this kind of work. It may sound like a dumb question, but was it a surprise to you that companies that only were interested in translation for marketing purposes were not meeting their goals, and yet these other companies that were translating for training purposes and to communicate with their employees were meeting their goals? Is, was that a surprise? It did surprise us, but at the same time, we, we talked about it among our research team members and thought, you know, the companies that do a good job making sure that their their mission is disseminated through all their employees, they have a stronger voice, and those employees become advocates for their products and services, and their whole company functions better, and it's really all about clear communication. That's That's a good example of the kinds of things that we look at on the demand side of the market. Um, we also do reports on the supply side, and that's what a lot of people know us for in the industry, translation agencies. For example, we might do a report on is the growth in online video creating more demand for multilingual subtitling and, and things like that. So, you know, there are 26,000 translation companies throughout the world, and we have all of them in our database. <laughs> so we survey them periodically on different issues and try to find out what are the trends in the marketplace? How fast are they growing? Can they find enough qualified translators? Are they educated? Do they have access to education and training? And that actually some of those things tie very closely into the African report that, that we did with Translators Without Borders. Yeah. Now, do tell me about what the brief was from Translators Without Borders. As you mentioned, I think before we started the interview, this wasn't a typical report for you guys to be uh, getting into. Yes. So there are several reasons why it wasn't a typical report. One is not a tremendous amount of companies are coming to us and saying, can you please do a report on Africa? It isn't the top priority, the top market that they're looking at. But Translators Without Borders did have a need to expand their pool of volunteer translators in Africa and wanted to learn more about what are the challenges that they're facing, what are the problems that African translators are facing on the ground. And of course, when we say African translators, we're talking about a whole continent. We're talking about 
hundreds and hundreds of languages, actually 2,000 languages spoken in Africa, more than 2,000, a third of the total languages spoken in the world. So we knew we couldn't do a country-by-country analysis, but we wanted to at least have an approximation by surveying the market in Africa. What are some of the issues that are, that translators are facing? You know, Are they finding enough access to the tools that they need to actually translate content? And what would be the social impact of increasing access to translation? So we looked at a lot of different issues. It sounds like a, you know, is, it was a pretty wide sweeping study, which is also different. Usually we zero in on more targeted topics. But for this, we wanted to get a general sense of the landscape of translation in Africa. Right. And we should be clear here that when we talk about translation, that is strictly written translation, not oral interpretation. So which presumably, I mean, the written languages, I mean, the popularity of those languages is going to be different from spoken languages. That's absolutely right. You know, does it, sorry, does it mean more English, more French, more European languages? Well, if you're talking about access to written information, a lot of individuals who can read in Africa do read another language that isn't their mother tongue. So English or French or Arabic, sometimes even German, Spanish, major world languages. Uh, but a lot of uh, the majority of individuals in Africa do have another mother tongue other than those languages. So yes, we're talking about large world languages, but we're also talking about huge members of the population who might not be able to read in those languages or might not be able to read at all. There is a report from the United Nations, and I had a fact sheet that gives information on literacy in Africa. And this particular fact sheet mentioned 176 million adults in Africa are unable to read and write. So we acknowledge that in the report, that written translation and written information will only get you so far. But for the people who, even the people who can read, don't have enough access to information in their native languages. So many people don't speak those languages. You know, many people do, but there's also a huge percentage of the population that cannot access information in French or English or any other language. So in order to get that information to them, obviously, translation would be an important thing to go from French into Hausa, into Igbo, into some of the other languages that are spoken by millions and millions of people in Africa. Okay, well, that's interesting. And it seems to dovetail a little bit with a slight backlash in at least a couple of countries against English. I mean, Ghana has been scoping out for a new official language, English being the colonial language, and so therefore there's some ill feeling toward it. And also with uh, Swahili, that the growth of Swahili, the spread of Swahili beyond the native-speaking areas into becoming something of a lingua franca. I mean, during the Congolese Civil War, uh, because there were so many African nations involved, that Swahili was used hundreds and hundreds of miles away from where people speak it uh, as natives. Mm -hmm. That's definitely true. We're seeing a rise of more interlanguages that people are using to communicate. And as the world becomes more connected, individuals who speak less common languages have more power. They have more access. They have more ability to connect with other people who speak the same languages as they do and participate in this 
online battle for content in their languages. That's really important. Many years ago, people didn't have that ability to connect. So therefore, if there were a large number of people who spoke a given language, they were the ones who had power. And language has often been used throughout history as a means of controlling access to power. So that's one of the reasons why translation is so important in some of these countries, because it's a means of taking power, and it's a means of being able to not just access information, but share information about political causes, human rights, all of those kinds of things. We did touch on those issues in the report to ask people how did they think translation would influence access to medical information that could save lives, information about political inclusion, and all of those things. But that you've hit exactly on the right point, Patrick. Language is ultimately about power when we're talking about these kinds of scenarios with content and information. So did you find that there were certain countries that were better about translating into local languages, uh, some of these key areas like healthcare, and others that maybe were still a little bit nervous about doing so, of handing over the power to the people who spoke those languages? Mm. We didn't actually survey government access and things like that. It would be very interesting to do a study and see which governments are providing access to information in the languages that are spoken by the majority of the people in each country. We we didn't do that in this particular study. What we did was survey translators themselves. We went directly to 364 translators in 49 countries, and they represented a total of 269 language combinations that they translate into and out of. And uh, we, we didn't go as detailed as a country because the, the total sample was only 364 translators. But we did notice some differences by country in what the challenges were that the translators faced. So, for example, in some countries, they cited that they actually couldn't perform translation even when a, a, a translation agency in another country was commissioning it from them because they couldn't accept the payment because of bans against their country receiving payments with certain banking systems and things like that. So that was a challenge that has nothing to do with language, (laughs) but definitely influences the translator's ability to actually do translation work. Right. And and presumably there is just the cost of all of this as well is going to be prohibitive. I mean, I'd noticed that what looked like a large number of the translators who you surveyed were living in South Africa, for example, because they, of course, are are able to earn a living in South Africa. Yes, Yes, definitely. You know, wherever there is money and there's economic opportunity, you're going to see translation increase in those countries because you really can't have you know, companies from China pouring direct foreign investment into there unless they can communicate. So definitely translation kind of follows the money trail, or you could even argue that maybe translation enables the money trail. So that's definitely true. One of the main reasons that translation is is growing in some of these countries is because there are companies that are going in from other countries and saying, you know, we're hiring workers, and so we need to communicate not just in the official languages of the country and not just in English, but we need to communicate with the workers on the ground. You know, we need to communicate with the people in their native languages because sometimes an interlanguage is not going to be enough. So definitely there is a connection between economic prosperity and economic opportunity and translation. 
Well, you mentioned the Chinese. I mean, they're renowned, I mean, notorious somewhat so for their interest and involvement in African infrastructure in many, many different African countries, both rich and poor. I mean, I wonder if you're hearing back from translators about what kind of works in a situation like that for the locals. Well, what I have been hearing is that there are a lot of challenges. China is coming in, but there aren't people who can translate between Hausa and Chinese. I mean, the, these are language combinations that don't really exist yet. There, granted, there are some people who can speak both languages, but what they're often having to do is go from Chinese into English or into French, and then from French into Hausa or Igbo or whatever language. And this isn't just limited to Africa, by the way. There are, you know, even the most popular languages, we often refer to them as figs, French, Italian, German, Spanish. There are problems finding German to Chinese translators in a lot of countries. And so, and, and, you know, it depends on the type of German and the type of Chinese, you know. So there are a lot of challenges with actually sourcing enough translators. At the same time, one of the things that people said in the study was that translation isn't really that organized in these countries yet, and so it's difficult to carve out a living. You have a lot of non-professionals who are performing translation. They don't have training. They don't have the technology that would make their work more efficient. They don't have access to education in translation specifically. And of course, there is this global assumption that if you speak two languages, you can be a translator, which is an absolute lie. <laughs> of course, you can translate just like, you know, a person who can write can say they're a writer. But <laughs> it doesn't mean just because you can write that you're a writer or that because you can speak, you're a professional speaker. Just because you speak two languages doesn't make you a translator. So I got to ask you what it does. What does it take to be a translator? You not only have to have fluency in both languages, but you have to know the languages at a depth that maybe even a native speaker doesn't have. So if you're specialized, for example, in financial translation, you need to know not only how to say a complicated financial concept in both languages. And in one of those languages, there might not even be a term. Sometimes you have to create a term, but you have to know exactly what they mean and you have to understand the relevance. So, you know, a lawyer, a banker, a doctor, you know, they know these terms in the sense of their daily activities and w what they mean in context. And a translator basically has to have that same knowledge and level of understanding of language, but in two languages instead of just one. You did mention that there is a, a deficit in some African countries uh, as regards education and training. Is that, you know, with the rise that we read of a lot of the African middle class, in certain countries, is there also alongside that a rise in education opportunities and training, the likes of which you guys would be satisfied that you know people are, can be called cool, fully qualified translators? In Africa, a lot of the translators that we surveyed were highly, highly educated. They had graduate degrees for the most part, and almost all of them had uh, graduated from college. But they didn't have access to training in translation, and that would mean training in the tools, knowing how to translate and apply, for example, translation memory, which is basically previous translations that can be leveraged for future purposes. That is something that they don't have access to, and that's a mandatory part of a translator's job, is to know how to use those tools and to know how to access glossaries and, and that kind of thing. 
The translators in Africa that we surveyed had a twofold problem. One was lack of access to education, both on the translation process and, and tools, but also they had a lack of access to information. And translators have to do a lot of research to find out, okay, there, here's a specialized medical term. What exactly does that mean? What's the context? How many different ways could I say this in my language? A lot of the translators in Africa didn't have any access to that information, couldn't get medical journals in libraries, much less online where they're so expensive in, in many cases, whereas translators in a lot of other countries, the United States, for example, can go to a library, can get free access to information that can help them make sure that they translate properly and correctly. That's something that a lot of the translators in Africa didn't have. Mm. Are there any particular African languages that are ahead of the game, that, where, that have got a, an infrastructure built around them so people do have access to glossaries and the like? Well, as you mentioned, South Africa, uh, Afrikaans, you know, there are more resources available. And actually, the South, in, in South Africa, there is a professional association for translators. And that has, a, translators in South Africa have a little more advantage than translators in a lot of other African countries. Uh, in North Africa, we're starting to see more associations start up, and those translators definitely have more access to resources that they can get together and build resources, uh, terminology resources especially. And yeah. for that, we're talking about Arabic or localized yes. uh, dialects of Arabic. Yes, exactly. So a lot of those, you might not even, th those wouldn't be what we might classify as African languages. Yes, they're important languages spoken in Africa, but as far as other languages, especially sub-Saharan African languages, there aren't a lot of resources in any one country that I would name. The survey didn't indicate that any one country had it easier than, than another, that basically all of them were facing similar issues. Even Swahili? Even Swahili, yes, uh, because it's not only Swahili, it's Swahili into another language. So whenever we're talking about a translator, you know, people I think might have this misconception that Swahili translators are a group that kind of bonds together. You know, it isn't really that way. It's more even in the lang you know, the language that I translate, you know, Spanish into English, which I don't go in English into Spanish because English is my native language and usually translators only go into their native language. So, you know, even the Spanish to English translators and English to Spanish translators are more likely to, to congregate, whereas the Spanish to Japanese or Japanese to English, you know, those, they're typically segmented in, into all these different groups. So, yes, you'll, you'll see in a group of professional translators where they all share Swahili as a language that they might all have different languages, but generally they're going to be working into the most popular languages like French and English and Arabic. You know, these are Mo the most in-demand combinations. So when I think about translation in Africa, I must admit I think a lot about Bible translation because groups like Wycliffe Bible Translators, they are tremendously active, particularly in, in sub-Saharan Africa in translating the Bible into some of these minority languages. I know that the translators that you work with aren't necessarily anything like as limited in the kinds of stuff that they do, but I wonder that given that they've got some money, they have some infrastructure, they have some tools, whether or not you ever work with people who also are Bible translators. Mm -hmm. Well, many translators who work on Bible translation 
you know, many countries, for many languages, the Bible is the first book that they're going to get in their language. A lot of the Bible translators have actually been the first to write the grammars for those languages and produce the first written materials in those languages. So definitely a lot of that work has been done by missionary organizations and Bible translation groups. They typically are not the same people who do the commercial translation work, as you said. However, a lot of the work that they do ends up, for example, there might be a, a term that doesn't exist in, in a given language, so some of the people who are actually translating the Bible might come up with the term in that language, and they're contributing new vocabulary to the language. Uh, but yeah, these things tend to be very disconnected. As I'm sure you know, a lot of sociolinguists and people in the linguistics community really look down on the Bible translation groups that go in and bring written language into those areas. And then there are others who say, others even in the linguistic community who say, well, this is the only information we have for these languages, so it's of some value, even if it's representative of only one ideology. So it is a source of controversy about, you know, should people even do translation in some of these languages? Is it, you know, it's the spread of religion, the spread of ideas. In general, there isn't a lot of contact between these groups. You know, you would think that there would be more because people might want to know, who worked on that Bible translation? I want that translator. I want to add them to my database so that the next time we have a project for that language, I can use them. But the reality is they might not even be the best candidates for a specific project. You know, if it's, if it's translating, you know, human resources manual, it might not have that much in common. And this is something that a lot of people don't realize. In translation, people tend to be, the translators tend to be very specialized. So you'll have somebody who only does financial translation, or you'll have someone who only does literary translation. Literary translators are in a completely different group. They don't have much in common with legal translators or technical translators. They typically don't even really talk to each other. They don't, they're not part of the same associations. And Bible translators are in their own group. But yeah, for African languages, you're exactly right. That is one of the groups that has done the most work in translation in some of these less common languages especially. Natalie Kelly. I'll post all relevant links at theworld.org slash language. And given that this report on Africa was commissioned by Translators Without Borders, well, I called up Laurie Thick. She runs Translators Without Borders. And she told me that the report's conclusions, they largely confirm her suspicions based on various anecdotal observation over the years that most of sub-Saharan Africa is being held back because of this lack of translations. And the people who are getting hit the most are poor rural Africans, people who maybe only speak their own native tongue, a tongue that a lot of materials are just not translated into. And there are a lot of materials out there that are supposed to help these people, like you know manuals and brochures and signs about incredibly important stuff, AIDS prevention, like how to use a condom. And these are materials that international NGOs have produced but for the most part, they're only in English and French, maybe a couple of other languages. And that's where Translators Without Borders can intervene. They're right now training translators in a center in Nairobi, the capital of Kenya. For the time being, they're focusing on Swahili just because it's so widely spoken. You, you get more bang for your buck that way. You get the word out quicker. But the idea is that this is just the start and that more governments, NGOs, and all the rest of them, they'll realize that translation is an incredibly important part of the communication chain. More on this to come, I'm sure, in future parts. And more from Natalie Kelly, too. 
I expect around the time that her book Found in Translation comes out. That's it for today. If you want to pitch me ideas or possible interviews, anything you'd like to hear in the podcast, you can do it several ways. The most instant is to tweet me. My handle is Patrick Cox, P-A-T-R-I-C-O-X. Or you can post something on the World in Words Facebook page, or you can email me. That address is language at pri.org. Have a great week.